In the days of the Russian Revolution, the Soviet state tried to stamp out Christianity, and they wanted to convert everyone to atheism. A popular Russian comedian had developed a, a stage act in which he would play a drunken Orthodox priest. Dressed in wine-stained robes, he did a comic imitation of the ancient but beautiful liturgy, and part of his performance was to chant the Beatitudes, but he used distorted words, you know, as a drunken man, such as, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for vodka, or blessed are the cheesemakers. And while struggling to remain upright in his act, um, he was rewarded again and again by the authorities for his work promoting atheism and to make worship seem ridiculous. But on one occasion, things did not go quite as planned. Instead of saying the garbled version of the Beatitudes uh, in his well-rehearsed comic manner, he chanted the sentences as he once sung them and repeated them as a boy. And they were the actual words from the Bible. And he listened intently to his memorized recitation. And something happened in the depth of his soul. On stage, and after singing the final beatitude, he fell to his knees weeping. And he had to be led from the stage. And he never again did his parody on worship. We, in fact, don't know what happened to him. But we can be sure of this. That when we mock God and his word, we will not get the last laugh. In Peter's day, there was plenty of mocking going on, especially about Christ coming back again, or what we refer to as the second coming. Peter has already implored his audience to remember the promises of the Old Testament. And of course, we have also now the promises of the New. And to remember, he said, that scoffers will come. And that their motive is to develop a worldview that gives them a free pass for doing anything that they want to do. Verse 2 says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the apostles. And verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. We pick up the passage in verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, I want you to notice the main point is of his coming, or the second coming of Christ. Peter is not concerned with some kind of eschatological plan like 
pre, post, or millennial view, but simply of Christ returning. And the scoffers dismiss the second coming because it hasn't happened yet. And this is according to their commitment to now what we can identify as uniformitarianism. And it says that all things stay the same because the universe is just rolling along without any divine interruption. Convulsive upheavals like a second coming just don't happen. Not in our material universe. That's the claim. God does not intervene in human history. Everything goes on as it has from the beginning. The interference of God is unacceptable to enlightened minds. It was then and it is now. There's a reason for why people do this. And Peter says it's because of their own sinful desire. Aldous Huxley was a philosopher and author who died in 1973 of a massive LSD overdose. He rejected the idea of a personal God. And he was the grandson of Thomas Huxley. You might know him uh, as he was called Darwin's bulldog because of his rabid support of evolution. Aldous, though, wrote a book in 1966 titled Confessions of a Professed Atheist. It was a treatise for how all atheists ought to think. Listen to what he wrote. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently assumed it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he should personally do, not do, just what he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation was desired by simultaneously a liberation from a certain political and economic system and a liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom, end quote. You have to appreciate Huxley's brutal honesty. And I think it's fair to say that not all atheists would describe their feelings so starkly. But the heart of man does not want to be told what to do. And Huxley nails that sentiment. Now, I don't believe that all atheists are aware of those innermost motives. Maybe some are, like Huxley. But the testimony of God is revealed that humans will construct a worldview, a philosophy, a perspective that gives them a free pass to behave like they want to without any repercussions. 
You can see them. Why they want to push aside this thought of a second coming that is so linked to judgment. Who are the fathers that are spoken to here that are falling asleep in our passage? Most agree that this refers to Old Testament prophets. The mockers were twisting the Old Testament, and it's out of the Old Testament that we see Peter answering their objections, the scoffers. And asleep refers to the dead saints of old. Jesus actually used that terminology to refer to dead people. After seeing these things, we read in John 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was, uh, he meant uh, taking rest and sleep. Clearly, asleep means death. Now to claim that since creation, the Old Testament and prophets confirm that God does not intervene in judgments or does not intervene in history is an inane argument. It's foolish. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They deliberately overlook this fact. They don't want to be bothered with the facts. It is deliberate avoidance. They love to do what they want to do. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in virtue. So the idea that Christ will come back and will judge prompts them to reject what Peter calls facts. They shut their eyes on purpose that God has intervened in our world. And it starts with creation. He created the heavens. He created the earth. And it was all done by the power of his word. Their premise that, you are, that we are in an unchanging world, that's a false premise. And so the conclusion is false too, that God cannot intervene. They willfully deny the facts of creation, and then we're going to see later here the flood. Now, the heavens don't exist because of some random process. They came because God willed it so. God spoke them into existence. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the heavens into existence. And the earth was formed out of a mass of water. Instead of living in a world that is, you know, machine-like, just rolling along without purpose, without intention. Paul is saying creation is God invading space and he creates matter. Well, you'll often hear people say, well, then who created God? If, if matter was, you know, all, all matter had a, a beginning. Well, God is not matter. God is a spirit. So he's not subject to the laws of matter. For our passage says, first water and then the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. 
and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So things are not rolling along in some evolutionary trajectory. Creation was stepping out into the world by God. Let's pick it up in verse 3 of Genesis. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was heaven, uh, excuse me, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was all good. In the first three days of creation, God takes the formless mass of water and makes the earth and the seas and the waters in the heavens. And the waters in the heavens make up a, a massive expanse of water or, or a canopy over the earth. And the result in the first six chapters of Genesis is that the earth had the ultraviolet lights filtered out from the sun. It's one of the reasons why we can conjecture that people could live extraordinary long years before the flood. Peter uses water as a thread to make his point here because the earth was created out of water, sustained by water, and it's going to be judged by water. Peter presents the case that the false teachers purposely ignored. It's the same today, uh, whether it's you know, a scientist, philosopher, or even theologians. They refuse to consider the data that refutes their hypothesis that there is a God who can intervene. The force behind it all is not water. That's just the tool. It's not purposeless energy, but the power of the personal Jehovah God. God created the heavens and the earth by his word. The phrase, and God said, occurs nine times in Genesis 1. The psalmist wrote, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. By the word of God, the sovereign word, any change in the history of the world can occur at any time. God in fact, controls the, quote, natural processes. And that by means, verse 6, of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Well, by means of what? What does these refer to? Verse 5, that the word of God 
and water. Water the tool, the word of God the power. They're paired in creating the world. And they're going to be used to judge the world. God has the power to interrupt at any time to accomplish his will. And he can use whatever he wants. Water, fire, whatever he wants. The psalmist also wrote, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Now the scoffers that Peter's referring to, I mean, they're using the idea that the world stays the same. And Peter is illustrating that, in fact, God can interfere in history. It's kind of like a news bolt, you know, that comes across your TV sometimes, you know. You know, when it says we interrupt this regular program to bring you this bulletin, God can interrupt anytime he wants. He can change the universe just by his word. And he did that with a worldwide flood that we read about in Genesis 6. Now, when he speaks of the world, understand when it says he destroys the world, the world is often referred to in the Bible to refer to simply the population of people. Uh, we read the famous verse in John 3, for God so loved what? The world that he gave his son. Or in 1 John, he's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, the people, the population. So there's no reason to think that Peter doesn't mean the same thing here in 2 Peter. God opened up the canopy, and the earth was deluged with water. And here are select verses out of Genesis that tell us the story. Then Noah saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh was cor um, had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Wow. It was total devastating judgment on the whole world. God has intervened in the past and I think we can trust him when he says that he is going to intervene in the future. The world will change. 
according to God's plan. Scoffers are a plenty. I get that. It doesn't take five seconds to find them. Just open up Wikipedia, look up the flood. It says flood geology or creation geology is a pseudo-scientific attempt to interpret and reconcile geological features of the earth in accordance with a literal belief in the Genesis flood narrative, the flood myth in the Hebrew Bible. Well, listen, dismissiveness is to be expected. And they will mock the idea of the flood. However, consider this. Fossils are found at the strata that can be only explained by a catastrophe. And I would suggest that's the flood. What you cannot reject is that there is clearly a geological record of a cataclysmic event. Fossils occur because of massive pressure, and the flood explains why, for instance, fish fossils are found in land areas all across the world. Dr. Kurt Wise, who has a PhD in geology from Harvard, studied fossils in Death Valley. One article writes about how he was observing trilobites, extinct marine creatures, says this. As he moved higher up the rock layers, however, he found more and more burrows, eventually by the thousands. Further up, instead of finding burrows, he found complete tracks of the critters scurrying across the sediment. At first, he found only a handful of these tracks, but he found much more the higher he moved. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he came across a mass graveyard of billions of trilobite shells. It was incredible. Kurt explained that scientists have found this same sequence all over the world. Burrows of, in one layer, trackways in layers above, and the actual body fossils in layers above the other two. It's a curious pattern that is puzzling to anyone who thinks the Earth is very old. Kurt provides a simple explanation, however. As layer upon layer of mud swept over the trilobites, they struggled to dig out of their tombs then ran across the layer they had, uh, that had just covered them and made new tracks. But as each successive layer piled on top of them, they eventually collapsed in exhaustion and died by the billions. End quote. Hmm. That's a curious thing that points to a flood. You know, what I find with my uh, progressive friends that like to tout how great Jesus is, but you know, not a flood and not judgment. And so they're very picky and juicy with, with Jesus. They don't really like Jesus who he is. They want a Jesus who they've created in their own mind. Because in fact, Jesus referenced the flood and he referenced judgment. He said this, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and destruction of the ungodly. So verse 7 tells us of another interruption, another cataclysmic event that is to happen in the future. And this time it won't be water that will do the trick. Remember, God sent a rainbow, by the way, to tell us that he promises that the world would not be uh, judged again by water. But judgment is called for again, but this time the instrument is going to be fire. Now, that's not unusual. God used fire, for instance, in judging Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Fire for judgment is also referenced by, by Joel, uh, the Psalms, Nahum, Malachi. Well, what does the fire refer to? Well, the honest answer is I don't know. And I don't think anybody really does know. Now, there are possibilities you can think about. Is it, is it um, you know, a nuclear holocaust? I don't know. Um, could it be fire from the sky with the starry bodies intersecting with the earth? I don't know. Could it have something to do with the heat of the core of the earth that is at 12,000 Fahrenheit degrees? I don't know. This is what I do know. The passage says it's by the same word. It's the word of God that will cause it. Peter references the day of the Lord in verse 10. Now we'll get to that um, next week. But this refers to the whole series of events and end times where God crushes man's final rebellion. Do people generally anticipate this? Of course they don't. In fact, many Christians don't. If the truth be known, many of us don't ever think of judgment. Right? And people are unprepared for the day of the Lord. Even though you have events in Israel and the Middle East that might give clues that, hey, this could be imminent. The Old Testament consistently teaches that this world we're in, this cosmos, is a moral universe created by God and that God is not going to let sin go unpunished. God is not only the creator of the universe, he is the judge of it. You may not like it. It might seem unsavory. You might not be used to it. You might find it even repulsive. But that doesn't change history. That doesn't change who he is. And that's not going to change what he will do. You know, there are 27 books in the New Testament. And 23 of them make reference to the Lord's return. It carries great importance. What is that importance? How do we make this applicable? How does this influence how we live our lives? We'll get more into that when we go further along in the passage in weeks ahead. But let's recognize this. People will believe anything, right? People will believe the earth is flat. They do. 
People believe Elvis is still alive, right? Uh, people think that biology and chromosomes has nothing to do with your sex. They will believe anything, right? Facts can be ignored, but some facts are far more important than others. And we live in light of the fact that God will bring all of us into an account according to his standards. Now listen, heaven is guaranteed for all of those who are in Christ Jesus, truly. They've trusted the gospel, they're hidden in Christ, I get that. But we will still answer, there is a judgment for Christians in the judgment seat of Christ. We will answer for our thoughts and deeds in terms of our rewards. It's not for punishment of hell or heaven. That's secured in Christ. But it's in terms of our rewards. There's a book called Words We Live By by Brian Burrell, and he tells of an armed robber named Dennis Lee Curtis who was arrested in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. Curtis apparently had scruples about his thievery. In his wallet, the police found a sheet of paper on which he had written the following code. Okay? You, know, you might want to follow this. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Okay? Number two, I will not take cash, or I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. Okay, awesome. Um, I will only rob at night. Thank you for that. Um, I will not wear a mask. Apparently a pre-COVID list, all right. Um, I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. Apparently, those are holy places, okay? Um, if I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. Next, I will rob only seven months out of the year. <laughs> what? what? Five months five months vacation, apparently. Okay, all right. Um, and then, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Now listen, this thief had his own sense of morality. Obviously it was flawed. And when he stood before the court, what was he judged by? Was it his list? Of course not. It was the standards of the laws of the state. And likewise, when we stand before God, we will not be judged by our own personal code of morality that we have written for ourselves, but it will be by God's law. And the Christian will face a judgment of works, again, for the purpose of rewards. That's the judgment seat of Christ. The non-believer will face an eternal judgment for rejecting Christ. That's at the great white throne judgment. The reality 
of both judgments is cause for us to run to Christ for covering. In him, we find forgiveness of sins. We find security in his provision. Listen, I know this is not something we think about often. But the fact is, there are many in evangelical Christianity, I don't even like even using that term, evangelical. It has been so hijacked by the culture, I don't even use it anymore hardly. But our tribe, whatever you want to call it, followers of Jesus, who claim Jesus, but they live life by their own standards. They care little about kingdom values. They do what they want to do with their sexual lives, with their money, with their family, with nary a thought about kingdom values. And then we read this. And I'm here to tell you, it's a wake-up call. It's a way for us to be sober about how we are living life. We thought about it on the way to church today. I saw so many people out just walking their dogs, doing whatever. And it's like, you know, maybe some were Christians and they just think, you know, church, no big deal. You know, I can go whenever, not that big of a deal. And I'm not judging the hearts of everybody, but I'm just saying that we live by our own standard instead of seeing that there are kingdom values that are to mark who we are as the people of God, and we will answer for it. And that ought to cause us to be frozen in our tracks and to look at how I'm living my life. I, I look at people who call themselves Christians and they're bitter, they're unforgiving. You know, you know of families who won't even speak to their own children. And children not to their own parents and who call themselves Christians. I mean, what is that? That's people who don't get it. Because no matter who's right or wrong, I guarantee you, okay, that when I stand before God and I were to tell him, you know what, oh Lord, listen, you know, my parents, they didn't raise me right. You know, they really hurt me. Or I had a pastor when I was in high school who said such and such against me and really hurt me, and I haven't been back to church since. And that's the reason. He's going to say, wait, wait a minute. I have my standards. I have the things that I have called you to do as the people of God, and you're telling me you didn't do it because of what? And you're going to realize that doesn't hold water. I'm not making light of past hurts. Deal with those. I'm not making light of, you know, churches or Christians who've been hurt. Deal with it. In every way you know how. Forgive whatever you have to do. But the problem is when I let those things 
dictate my life instead of living before a holy God as he wants me to live, sacrificing my whole body, spirit, soul for his sake and realize I cannot squander my life and I cannot squander a day. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy things. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy your family. It doesn't mean that every day is lived like a funeral. No, in fact, every day can be with, with great joy. But I can hold grief and joy, and you know, grief in one hand and joy in the other. I can have pleasure, and I realize that comes from the Lord. I'm not drawing a picture of just how life has to be hapless, but it can be joyful. But my point is, we live giving our bodies, our lives to the Lord daily. Lord, my body is yours. This church is yours. And now I give it to you today to use as you see fit. And so I take your word seriously. I take judgment seriously. I don't know all the details, but I know enough to know have to give an answer. I implore you, as your friend, as your pastor, to take these words seriously. Let's pray.